If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 13 again this morning. Obviously, this is the beginning of the Christmas season for us. We begin looking forward to celebrating Christmas, having completed Thanksgiving. And yet the real focus of Thanksgiving should be Christmas, right? So it's very appropriate that we have a a day of Thanksgiving because it truly is something that should point us toward the greatest gift of all, which is the Lord Jesus. And so we want to continue looking at 1 Corinthians 13 uh, in light of the fact that many uh, poets and songwriters have talked about the fact that Christmas really is about love. And it's actually about love incarnate, love coming down. And, And one person who's talked about this is, Christina Rossetti, who said, Love came down at Christmas, love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas, star and angels gave the sign. And so when we think about the birth of Christ and we think about his life, we may or may not uh, think about 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have a description of what love looks like. And as... uh, Sinclair Ferguson Ferguson talks about in his uh, Christmas meditation on 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about the fact that when we look at verses 4 through 7, which says love is patient, love is kind, we should automatically put in there Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, or when he was with us on earth in light of fallen mankind, he was still patient and kind and all the things that we see in this chapter. And so you could argue that what we have in 1 Corinthians 13 is truly um, the spirit of Christmas. It is really what Christmas is all about. So if you would, read with me again uh, this chapter, beginning in verse 1, where it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. 
One of the things that's interesting about the New Testament is over and over again in various ways, you have those last three things mentioned in verse 13 spoken about, faith, hope, and love. And as I've thought about that, I think you could easily come up with three very important questions in light of those three things and in light of what the gospel is all about. The first question would be, what will I do with my guilt? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's why for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So purpose behind Christmas is to save sinners. So the one question that we all have to answer is, what will I do about or what will I do with my guilt? And the good news of Christmas is God has provided a way. He's provided salvation in his Son. And if we will simply trust him as our Lord and our Savior, then our guilt will be taken care of. And I believe that is at the heart of the faith that we see talked about in the New Testament. Another question is, what will I pursue as my supreme good? What and what am I going to hope in to make me truly happy? Jesus came to basically say, the only way you can be happy is through God and through me having a relationship in, in and with God. The Bible tells us over and over that we were created in the image of God. We were created to find our joy in God. And Christmas is about joy. We sing about that joy, but it's not a joy that comes naturally. It's not an automatic joy, but it's a joy that comes through Jesus as we are restored in our relationship with God. And the question is, am I pursuing my supreme ultimate good in God or in things. We have a lot of people around us that think if they just get that new car or something else at Christmas time, they'll be happy. But Jesus came to say, no, um, joy is found in God. That's where our ultimate happiness is. But especially with relationship to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we can ask ourselves, what is my goal in life? Or what is my goal in any particular relationship? Is my goal love and is it the kind of love that i see in first corinthians 13 am i praying for grace to love my wife like it says there to love my husband like it says in first corinthians 13 to love my children or to love my parents or to love my co-workers uh, am i praying for grace the enabling of the Holy Spirit, because love is the fruit of the Spirit. Am I praying for the Holy Spirit to enable me to live out, flesh out, not perfectly, but to some degree, what I find in 1 Corinthians 13? Am I really pursuing that? Because ultimately, Christmas is all about those three things. Dealing with our guilt, helping us to see where our true good is found, and enabling us to pursue love, love to God, and love to others. So one way to think about the whole issue of wishing people a Merry Christmas or wanting to have a Merry Christmas, ultimately it comes down to the issue of love. And I would kind of summarize it by saying the only way to truly have a Merry Christmas isn't necessarily by getting the perfect gift or giving the perfect gift, 
but by knowing that regardless of who loves you or doesn't love you, knowing and believing that God loves you. That that is crucial to being truly joyful, merry, happy at Christmas. And also to be about loving people like God loves us. Not about how they love us, but, but, but how God loves us. And so the more I know and believe God's love for me as it's revealed in the gospel, the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and the more I seek to live my life in light of what the Bible says, this is how God loves. The more I do that, both in terms of my faith and my love, the more, more joy I'm going to have. And so it's not joy and, and merriment at Christmas time isn't about what people typically think it's about because there are plenty of people uh, that are doing the same things that everybody else is doing, but they're terribly depressed and discouraged and unhappy at Christmas time. And so um, Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so true uh, Christmas merriment is actually found in love, but it's found in knowing and believing the love of God for us and actually loving as God loves. And so let me just remind us very quickly what we've talked about already. We've begun looking in detail about what Paul says love looks like in verse 4. He says love is patient. Basic idea is it suffers for a long time. It stays in relationship for a long time and doesn't simply say, well, you're not loving me like you should, so I'm out of here. It hangs in there. And it's, in that sense, the platform for all the other kinds of or aspects of love. Then he says, be kind. And kind is it's, it's the idea of being merciful, which is I don't give people what they deserve, which is part of patience too, but I actually give them what they don't deserve. I do them good. I hang in the relationship, even though they're not everything I want them to be. And I don't give them what they deserve, punishment for their sin, but I actually do them good. I, I treat them the way I would want to be treated, even on my bad days. Then he says not to be jealous. The, the idea of that is to strive after what other people have. Either to have it for yourself or to take it away from them. And it's the idea of not wanting other people, uh, not really desiring the happiness of other people. And yet, to love others means I really want other people to be happy. That's the whole uh, purpose of why Jesus came, so that we might have his joy, he said. Um, it goes on to say that love does not brag, which is the idea of uh, lifting myself up and putting others down. Rather, it seeks to lift others up, encourage others. It's not arrogant, meaning it doesn't have a puffed up, inflated opinion of itself, because when it does, it again looks down on other people. You can't talk proudly and think proudly and still love people because you're talking from up above them. And therefore, you're looking down on them, you're talking down on them, and you can't love in that context, in the context of pride. And so God calls us to recognize how much humility is required, seeing ourselves and seeing others as God tells us 
as as God says, is really true. Is It's all necessary for loving. And then finally, we talked about the fact that love does not act unbecomingly, which means I do what's honorable in the sight of God and men. I do what's honorable in the sight of God and in the sight of men so that I'm polite, I'm courteous, even when people are bumping me in the store and they're grabbing at stuff uh, as we're fighting over items, you know, in the store or whatever. Um, Being courteous, being kind is all part of loving as God calls us to love. And we've talked about all that, but the reality is when you think about that, um, I think about these things and I think, Okay, all I need to con- condemn, be condemned, and be deserving of hell is just to read 1 Corinthians 13. So I see how far short I fall from the glory of God. God's glory is his goodness, his love. That's his glory to sinners. And so I look at that and I realize I need a savior. If I read 1 Corinthians 13 and I understand it, I recognize I'm so thankful for Christmas and I'm thankful for Easter and I'm thankful that God has provided a savior. But even as a Christian, I look at that list and say, that doesn't come naturally. That's not easy, especially when uh, relationships are difficult. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit to enable me to do what I cannot do which is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's talking to a church that all, had all kinds of spiritual gifts. And they were doing all kinds of things like prophesying and speaking in tongues and everything else. But they weren't looking to the Holy Spirit for what they really needed, which was grace to love each other and to love graciously. We need the grace of God to love graciously. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And so let's look at the next thing that he says in verse 5. And we'll try to understand better what these things mean for us today as well. He says, it or love does not seek its own. Does not seek its own. One way to picture what's going on here in this phrase is, there's a story that I've told before about a man who was a Russian novelist. He wrote some pretty famous books, but he came to the U.S. and he visited with a friend in the U.S. and he collected butterflies and moths. And you may have remembered the story where one day he's chasing this butterfly and he hears some groaning. And he just goes on and he completes his butterfly um, search. And he goes back and he talks to his friend and he said uh, that he had heard some groaning uh, down by the stream. And he was doing this search for butterflies in a... um, a place called Bear Gulch. And his friend said, well, what did you do when you heard the groaning? And he said, you know, I I didn't do anything. I just, I had to get the butterfly. So I just went on. Um, Someone talking about this man's fiction writing said, his fiction has never been praised for its compassion. He was single-minded, if nothing else. They found out that the next day that there was an old prospector there in Bear Gulch who died. And he was the man that was groaning when this butterfly chaser was around. And they actually renamed Bear Gulch to Dead Man's Gulch. And you may have heard of that. 
And that's why it's called what it's called. But the idea of being single-minded. This man was single-minded. I have to get the butterfly. I can't take time to find out what's going on with all this groaning. That is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says love does not seek its own. Was there anything wrong with him collecting butterflies? No. Was there anything wrong with him seeking butterflies? No. What was wrong with the picture there? He was seeking those butterflies to the neglect of the good of that man. He was so single-minded on what he wanted that he wasn't willing to pursue the good of someone else. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about the idea of seeking your own happiness because God calls us to seek our happiness in him through Jesus. But we're to seek our happiness in such a way that we're also concerned about the happiness of others. We're to seek our own good. The Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's a sense in which we do take care of ourselves and we're supposed to, but we're also to love our neighbor in the same way we love ourselves so that it's not a private kind of self-seeking where I'm just all about doing what I want to do and getting what I want and not really concerned about other people. And so that's why Jonathan Edwards could say a Christian spirit is the opposite of a selfish spirit. It's all about selfish ambition. You can see this um, in Pilate. What happened with Pilate? Jesus appears before Pilate. Pilate has Jesus scourged. Twice he tells the religious leaders, I find no guilt in him. But the religious leaders come back and they say this. They say... If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. They play the Caesar card, so to speak. They're playing politics. They don't want Jesus released. Pilate's leaning toward releasing him. And they say, okay, you know, this man says he's a king. And anybody who says they're a king is a threat to Caesar. And if you support someone who's a threat to Caesar, Caesar's not going to like that and he's not going to like you. And so, what became the most important thing for Pilate? His own private interest. How can I preserve my position? How can I preserve my place? And therefore, the good of Jesus wasn't any longer a consideration. It came down to just pursuing his own selfish ambition. And what Paul is saying here is when we love like God loves, we don't pursue our own selfish ambitions, but we actually seek our own happiness and the happiness of others. We realize that God has designed things to work in such a way that our happiness comes as we pursue the happiness of others. We don't get more happy by becoming more self-seeking. We become more miserable, actually. And the Lord Jesus Uh, exhibited what Paul is talking about here. And Paul describes it in Philippians 2 when he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in 
Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. So Jesus didn't simply sit up in heaven, so to speak, and concern himself simply with his own interests. But Paul says he uh, set the example for us in being concerned about the interests of others. And that's why the incarnation happened. That's why Christmas happened. That he was certainly pursuing his own glory, pursuing his own good as God. God does that, but not privately. Jesus came, Jesus was born. It says right here in Philippians 2, because Jesus uh, was interested in our good, our happiness, not simply his own. Another illustration of this that I thought about this morning is there's the story of John the Baptist who gets beheaded. Jesus hears about that and the implication is he was moved deeply by hearing about John the Baptist being killed. And he says to his disciples, let's go, let's get away. Uh, We need some time alone. So they go across the lake and when they get across the lake, everybody has chased them down and there's a big crowd on that other side of the lake. And if I were in that situation, I would have said, excuse me, excuse me. I'm trying to grieve here. Would you leave me alone? That's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus says. He gets out. And what happens is, it's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. He teaches them and he feeds them. Then he sends them away. And then he gets alone with his father. He put the interests of others before himself in that situation. He set the example for us. And so God himself shows us what this is to look like. That we are not to pursue our own private personal interests, but we're to pursue our good, yes. But we're to pursue it um, with regard to the happiness of others. Um, There's a story in the Old Testament that drives me crazy every time I read it because it's about Hezekiah. Hezekiah is about to die and he prays and God says, I'll give you 15 more years. People from Babylon come and they find out how rich he is. And Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, you know what? Uh, Those guys are going to come back one day and they're going to take all your riches and they're going to take your sons with them to Babylon. And Hezekiah says this to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and truth in my days. That's a private, selfish kind of perspective that says, well, at least I don't have to put up with that. I'll leave that to my grandkids. Let them take care of it. And Paul is saying, that's not how love thinks. That's not a loving way to think about things. Um, But Paul would say that love is ready to sacrifice for the joy of others. Um, And so we just have to ask ourselves, at times are we like the butterfly chaser? Just so locked in on what we want and what we're pursuing that we're neglecting others. 
We're not really being considerate of their good and their happiness. Uh, Is it simply what I want in any particular relationship or any particular situation? Or am I thinking about other people, praying for other people? That's why the Lord's Prayer is um, give give us this day our daily bread, not just give me this day my daily bread, give us. It's always thinking about others. So Paul reminds us that we have to be careful of selfishness. But then he goes on from there. And he talks about something that is um, kind of related to the idea of being quick to assert myself. It's like it's the idea of being quick to defend ourselves, so to speak. He says love is not provoked in verse 5 as well. Um, there's a story about uh, a man who's driving down the, the road. And there's this woman in the car behind him tailgating him. And you've probably never done this, but he, he didn't like the fact that she was tailgating. And the yellow light comes up, and so he stops. And she has to stop, cause she's, but she's in a hurry, and she, she's very upset that he doesn't run the light or run the yellow light or go through the yellow light so she can go as well. And so she begins hawking hawking horn and yelling at him and and um, just going crazy well uh, a policeman walks up taps on her window and and says excuse me ma'am uh, i need you to step out of the car and he begins to ride her up and takes her down to the police station and according to the story she sits in jail for a couple hours and then he brings her back out and he says i'm very sorry for this mistake ma'am I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, using bad gestures and bad language. I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Choose Life license plate holder, the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign, the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. (laughs) And so the person telling the story says, you know, people look at us as Christians and say, Sometimes we we don't respond too well. Um, we, we're not very Christ-like in our response, especially in light of this kind of issue of getting provoked. Um, the idea of being provoked there, the ESV translated, translates it being irritable, which that's one aspect of it. It's more literally the idea of how you would respond if somebody came up and poked you with a stick. You know, you're... you're just walking along, somebody pokes you and, ah, what are you doing? It's kind of that response um, to be quickly angered um, for whatever uh, reason. It's the idea of being touchy. Not that they're literally poking you with a stick, but whatever they're saying or doing gets that kind of response out of us. I thought about the story in the Old Testament with Nabal and Abigail David and his men, um, they help protect Nabal's shepherds. And David sends some men to Nabal, who's a rich, rich man, has a lot, large flock, and he's shearing his sheep. And evidently the idea is while they're shearing their sheep, they're feasting and they're having a party. And David sends his men to Nabal and says, on this festive day, because basically because we help to protect your shepherds, so they wouldn't get hurt. Uh, could you give us, you know, some of your abundance? And basically, Nabal says, who's David? 
a lot of people who are rebelling against their masters. Uh, no. And what is said about Nabal is that that he was um, he was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was such a worthless man that no one could speak to him. And I picture him as someone that would be included in this category of easily provoked, because we tend tend not to want to talk to people that we think are just going to are likely to fly off the handle and get angry with us. We tend to avoid them and we tend to say, you know, uh, you can't really talk to that guy because uh, he's just going to, he's irritable and he's harsh. And, and yet what's interesting is David hears about Nabal's harsh uh, response and David says, okay, guys, put on your sword. Nabal pokes David and David is provoked to anger. And he starts heading there and he's going to kill every man. Not just Nabal. He's going to kill every man in his bunch. David was provoked to anger just like Nabal. They, in this story, they are two peas in a pod. David wouldn't see it that way. He would, he would say, no, no, Nabal's being evil. He would, probably wouldn't see it. Well, he didn't see it until Abigail stops him and says, don't do this. And God, through Abigail, prevents David from, in anger, murdering all those men. But it's a picture of, you told me no. I'm angry, now I'm going to kill you. No, you can't have my food. Okay, I'll kill you. And so it's an amazing thing, and yet... Obviously, we may not go to that extreme. Hopefully, we won't go to that extreme. But there are ways in which we respond that way during the day at different times, um, depending on what's going on. And basically, the idea is to be careful of being harsh and touchy. Somebody says something or somebody does something, and we're eagerly irritated or easily angered. Um, I see the same kind of thing in the ministry of Jesus where he did not respond that way, but he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's um, planning to stay in Samaria. And when the Samaritans find out that he's on his way to Jerusalem, they will not give them a place to stay. James and John are poked with the stick. And what do they say? They say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus says, well, he rebukes them. And he says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. You're not of the easily provoked spirit. And they move on. Jesus' response was different. Now, did Jesus say that what they did was right? No. It wasn't a way of saying that what they did was insignificant or what wasn't wrong. But James and John responded in a way that was wrong. And Jesus actually rebuked them for that. Later on, obviously, the Lord Jesus, in laying down his life for us, is received with slaps among the religious leaders. He's mocked by the soldiers. And he never gets angry, even in the midst of that terrible treatment. The reality is nobody does that apart from the Spirit of God. None of us can be like Jesus. 
uh, and be mocked and not get angry, to be received with slaps and not get angry, to get poked and not get angry. But by the Spirit of God, we can. And that's why we have to look to God for what we need. There are different ways. We, we talk about this in terms of you know getting our buttons pushed. There are certain things that seem to to do that for us. And the Bible tells us that we need to actually turn the other cheek. Jesus said, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. What does that mean? Well, one thing it means is don't run away so that they can't slap your other cheek. It means stay in the relationship. Don't respond in anger, but do what's right. Whatever that it means. And so the Bible tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Uh, in a sense, we need to have a thick skin. You could call this the thick skin of, of love. And so, as I think about this, the question is, am I ever like the road rage woman? Because I think all of us would say, there are times in which I feel like I do have a pretty short fuse. I, sometimes I do feel like I'm pretty thin-skinned. Maybe if certain people bring up certain topics or if I'm around certain people or maybe certain times of the day, it's just at the end of the day or maybe it's after certain events or maybe during certain activities like driving or sports. Um, Are there particular ways in which certain people push our buttons? That's what Paul is talking about here is we have to ask ourselves, are, are we responding that way? And if we are, we need to look to God through Jesus by the Spirit to be different, to recognize it and to fight it, rather than to simply say, well, well, they deserved it. They may have deserved it, but that's not the love that Paul calls us to exercise. That's not the love that God calls us to exercise. It's not a you-get-what-you-deserve kind of love. It's a you-get-what-you-don't-deserve kind of love love. Well, finally, let me uh, wrap up with this one. Love does not take into account suffered, which is an interesting phrase because different people understand this phrase different ways. If you looked at the New King James Version, it's translated, thinks no evil. Minds you of those monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil, think no evil, whatever. Um, The ESV says, is not resentful. The other versions say, does not keep a record of wrong. Literally, it means, does not impute evil to. It's an accounting term. It doesn't credit someone with evil. Again, I've told the story about the woman who's in the airport. She buys a packet of cookies, you remember, and she's sitting down, and she's sitting by this man, And this man begins reaching over and taking her cookies and eating her cookies. And she's becoming increasingly upset at this gentleman. Uh, Can't believe that he would eat her cookies. And finally, there's one cookie left and he breaks it in half. He shoves one half over to her. He eats the other half and he gets up and gets on his plane. And she's just so angry that this guy could be so rude, so inconsiderate, so selfish to eat her cookies And she hears uh, them announce her flight. She looks in her purse to get her her ticket and sees her bag of cookies. And all of a sudden she realizes that she was eating his cookies. 
he wasn't eating her cookies. But she had assumed the worst. She had assumed that he was actually being evil when actually he wasn't. There are two ways this this phrase is understood to not impute evil. They're both closely related, I do believe. One emphasizes the idea of um, being ready to forgive and forget, not keeping a record of people's past wrongs. But let's say you do keep a record of people's past wrongs. What can you do with that record? Well, you can whip it out in arguments. You can whip it out when you want to punish them. Or you can whip it out when you hear them say something or see them do something and believe that, okay, whatever's on this sheet of paper must be true of what he just said or what he just did. And so there are two ways this is understood, either the issue of taking revenge for what people have done or being suspicious that whatever they say or they do is really wrong. It's, this is the way Jonathan Edwards puts it. He says, It's a disposition to think or judge evil of others with regard to their state or qualities or actions. It's a disposition uncharitably to judge others, to look at their actions, to look at their words, and to judge them uncharitably with a condemning assessment. He says it's putting the worst construction on men's actions. And so I hear what somebody says, and I assume the worst. I see what somebody does, and I assume the worst, which could be closely related to that list of offenses that I'm interpreting those words and actions through. So I do think they can go together. So one way to maybe summarize the idea is, don't be ready to blast others with a list of wrongs or credit them with the worst of evils in particular situations. Rather, think the best of others even though you are aware of their past sins. Again, it takes the Holy Spirit to do this kind of loving um, two quick illustrations. You got the illustration in Matthew 18 about the un- unforgiving, forgiven servant. Uh, the king forgives the servant of his huge debt. He finds his fellow slave, refuses to forgive him. That's the idea of keeping a record of wrong and punishing people for it. So that's part of the picture here that Paul has in mind. But there's also the other aspect of it with regard to suspicion. You may recall um, Goliath is showing up before the armies of Israel and they're all afraid. David takes some food from his father. His father tells him to go down, bring some food to your brothers. And he shows up and he begins asking questions about Goliath and about what King Saul has said about the man who kills Goliath. And um, David's oldest brother looks at this young kid and he says, um, well, it says this about Eliab. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he, David, spoke to the men and Eliab's anger burned against David and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart for you have come down in order to see the battle. And like most young brothers would say, David says, what have I done now? So what's going on there? Eliab 
was assuming the worst of David. Not knowing that his father had sent him and he was just asking questions, but he assumed the worst. What's interesting, though, is to look at how uh, God doesn't do that in various ways. Um, I think about the situation with Gideon and the angel shows up. Gideon's trying to hide um, his wheat from the Midianites. And the angel says, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. It's a very gracious evaluation of Gideon, who is deathly afraid. But he's doing something. Uh, Or the evaluation, uh, the gracious evaluation of Job, where at the end of Job, God says to the three friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, speaking to Eliphaz, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, if you read the book of Job, you know that there are a lot of things Job said that was not right. But God gave a very gracious interpretation of Job in saying that you have not spoken like Job, my servant, has. But there's another illustration that Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan, many years ago, who talked about this in his book, um, uh, The the Christian, what's it called? The the Jewel of, what is it called? Christian, the, the Jewel of Christian Contentment, is that how it goes? Yes. So he wrote that book, and at the end of that book, he made this observation. He said, if you read 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, at the beginning of the chapter, it talks about wives being submissive to their disobedient husbands. And in that passage, Sarah is used as an example of a woman who hoped in God and was submissive to her husband by calling him Lord. And Jeremiah Burroughs says, if you look up the times in the book of Genesis when Sarah called Abraham Lord, there's only one time she did that. And that time was when uh, God was talking to Abraham and said uh, to Abraham, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah and Abraham are much older. They don't expect to be having kids, at least not naturally. And God tells Abraham, uh, Sarah's going to have a child. She's old, but she's still going to have a child this next year. And it says, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And that's when um, God says to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah says, I did not laugh. And God says, No, but you did laugh. The interesting thing that Jeremiah Burroughs points out is that God, in talking about Sarah in the New Testament, does not mention anything about her unbelief. What he mentions is the fact that she called her husband Lord. And so, basically, he's highlighting the fact that God, with his people, is very gracious in his interpretations of their lives. Their their lives are under the blood of Christ. And so he will 
look at the positive and encourage us with the positive. I think that's part of what's behind what it says in Proverbs 19 when it says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. There's a sense in which God overlooks a lot. He overlooked a lot in the situation with Job and focused on the things he did say right. He overlooked a lot with regard to Sarah and focused on what she did do right. Um, it's almost like God is setting the example for us to say, yes, there, there's a lot of negative you can focus on with regard to the people around you, but love chooses to focus as much as possible on the positive, on the good, and to assume the best until there's good evidence for the contrary. And so that's why uh, Jeremiah Burroughs could say, if there is if there is an abundance of evil and a little good, God rather passes by the evil and takes notice of the good. Thus, how graciously God deals with us. If there is but one good word among a great many ill, what an interpretation God makes. He says, love is of that nature that if ten interpretations may be made of a thing, nine of them bad and one good, Love will take that which is good and leave the other nine. So what is he talking about? Well, we hear somebody say something, we see somebody do something, and we come up with all the possible motivations or all the possible things that may lie behind that or, or be going on in that situation. And he says, maybe you come up with ten interpretations and nine of them basically say they're up to evil. But one says... No, maybe there's a good reason for what they're doing. Love will pick the one good reason and leave behind the nine bad conclusions until there's good evidence to the contrary. It's not, it's not about being blind. It's not about ignoring evidence. It's not about being gullible. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about before you know all the facts and before you actually have searched it out and, and know what's really going on, and even heard from them, don't assume the worst. And so he says there's a sense in which God illustrates this and how he talks about people in Scripture. And he encourages us, Jeremiah Burroughs does, on the one hand, to do the same thing with God. God's at work in our lives, and we can come up with different interpretations of what he's doing and why. And we can come up with nine bad interpretations. God doesn't love me. God isn't keeping his promises. God's trying to kill me like the Israelites in the wilderness. Or we can be determined to believe that God is loving me and doing the wisest and best thing possible. And to believe that until there's evidence to the contrary, which there never will be. The other thing is to apply it in our lives with people, to recognize that it's hard to love someone if you've already basically condemned them, you already basically imputed evil to them when there's, it's not there. So you can't really love them based on the, the, the facts of the matter because you've created a whole other narrative. And so he's encouraging us to be careful of that tendency. 
He says, if we've been shown such grace by God, how can we withhold it from other members of God's family who have been cleansed by Christ? Burrell says, if there is only one good interpretation that we can make of a thing, we should rather make use of the good one than the bad. How often are we like the woman in the airport, assuming the worst without examining the evidence, um, recording people's sins, to bring them up later, recording people's sins and then imputing them to them in different situations? Are we fighting to forgive, fighting to overlook, fighting to assume the best? That's what God calls us to do. Jesus came so that we could be forgiven for not doing just what we've talked about today. And Jesus came so that we might have the Holy Spirit so that we could increasingly do just what we talked about today. And so we can go from here not feeling condemned, but very hopeful. We can be joyful that in Christ we're forgiven for not loving this way, but not complacent about it, but praying, God, help me to love this way more and more by your Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does lay us wide open and it shows us how much we need a Savior. And we thank you that you've given that Savior to us and we celebrate the giving of the Savior at this Christmas season. And we thank you that not only can we rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior who's more than able to deal with our guilt and our sin, but we've also been given the Holy Spirit that we might become more like Jesus and love more like you love this Christmas. Please help us to do that. Help us to pray in light of that. And please meet the deepest needs of our heart and help us more and more to see you treating us these in this way, that we might be freed more and more to treat others in this way as well. Father, we just thank you for what you're doing, and we just entrust all this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.